Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm getting ready for the, the bomb cyclone. It's supposed to be like oh, negative yeah. 35 wind chill in Minnesota on Thursday. Oh but God. What does that even feel like? It's Well, if you're feeling it, then you're doing something wrong. Like you're not supposed you to. You're inside. supposed to stay inside. But it's supposed to be like minus 70 wind chill in Sioux Falls. I can't even That's conceptualize that. That'll kill you. When I lived in Ann Arbor, the only time they ever canceled class for weather-related reasons was not because it was snowing, but because it got too cold and no one believed that the undergraduates would dress appropriately to go to class. You got to look cute. doesn't matter how cold it is. You've got to look cute. Have you ever gone clubbing in Connecticut in January? No, and I lived in Connecticut. <laughs> Why have you gone clubbing in Connecticut? Oh, because you went. Oh, because you went to that. You went to the seditious conspiracy law school. I've spent some time in the state of Connecticut, and I will say I lived <laughs> off of Crown no, Street, which was like <laughs> or Middletown. I lived like on the street that had all these clubs and bars and you would go and people would be like, you don't want to wear a jacket because you don't want to check your jacket and lose it. So people would just be like in out gear in January. These people were not aware of the concept of the frat jacket or the fracket, which is the jacket you wear to the frat party. And then if you lose it, it doesn't matter. Let's be clear. I did not do this in undergraduate, but I did spend six years in a Big Ten school. So I learned about the existence of these things. So it's like a burner jacket. Exactly. Exactly. It's like a burner jacket. It doesn't have to be cute. Like, like it is understood no. that it like shapeless sleeping bag. It's got to like keep you, just, you warm okay. enough as you're waiting in line to get into the frat party. And then if someone else oh takes it or you lose it, NBD, I mean, you're going to be cold on your way home. Right. That won't you freeze to death on the way back. But you'll be super drunk by then. So it'll be fine. Or you just take yeah. someone else's jacket. Like that's the, the, other, <laughs> the other option. Communal. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rational Security. I am one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson. I'm thrilled to be here once again with my two regular co-hosts, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And Alan Rosenstein. Hello, hello. And to be joined by our fellow Lawfare senior editor and fellow Brookings fellow, uh, Molly Reynolds. Molly, thank you so much for being here once again on Rational Security. No doubt to dip deep into the other branch, the other political branch that we don't talk about as much as we should, but we still talk about Vermont Congress. Uh, what the hell was that about? That wasn't my cleanest intro. I'm not going to lie. We talk about Congress a lot. Also, Molly's so much more than just a Congress nerd. We're, she's she's here for her entertaining personality, frankly. The other yeah, branch. Yeah, the what other does that branch. even mean, Scott? The other, I said the other political branch. We talk about the judiciary of Fairmount. Also, the judiciary is a political branch, let's be clear. Well, they don't think of themselves as one. (laughs) Not according to them, they're not. Molly coming in hot. Back on track, everyone. (laughs) There we go. Tighten up. Well, thank you so much for joining us here, Molly, uh, especially right as we are getting ready and easing into the holidays. This will be our last regular episode 
of 2022, although we will be having a very special episode for you next week of listeners submitted object lessons and topics. But until then, we are happy to have Molly here with us for what we are calling the Fracket Fracas edition, because this has been in a week that has nothing to do with frackets or fracases, really. <laughs> a big week, of course, in national security news as we wind up to the end of the year. It's a moment to look behind the year behind us, what's happened, look a, little, look a little bit to the year ahead about what is yet to come and do a little bit of speculation. Uh, and we have a lot of things falling into place as we get to the end of the year and people are trying to squeeze in last bits of national security work before the holidays. And that's given us a lot to talk about. So our first topic for this week, topic one, don't fear the referrals. It's a cowbell. <laughs> No, very, very nicely. Oh, my God. More cowbell. I'm frustrated. I'm a, Oh, that's another cowbell. It just went off. That was an errant cowbell. Apologies. <laughs> Please get your cowbells in order, Scott. I was very frustrated because I was all set to finally use a listener-submitted topic name, which was Referral Madness, which somebody pointed out we should have done the last time we talked about referrals. And another podcast stole it out from under us, not yesterday. So I couldn't use it. So I had to improvise for another one. So don't fear the referrals. Uh, it's as good as we're going to get. Um, as its presumed end draws nigh with the new Congress, the January 6th committee is racing to bring its work to a close. Yesterday, it voted to make four sets of criminal referrals, including for former President Trump. It also released a 100-page draft executive summary for its forthcoming report, which we are still waiting on as of the time of recording. What more should we expect from the committee, and what impact will these steps have? Topic two, the grapes of Vlad. Like grapes of wrath. This is a hard one. We've done a lot of Ukraine topics. That's kind of out of out of topics at this point. The U.S. Congress sent a strong message of support to Ukraine this week by committing $45 billion in U.S. assistance over the coming year, which is a little more than a year, even more than requested initially by the Biden administration. But there are few signs that Russia's poor performance thus far is threatening Russian President Vladimir Putin's control of the country. Instead, he seems to be settling in for a long-haul strategy of waiting out Western and Ukrainian resistance. What trajectory is this conflict headed in as it approaches the one-year mark? Where do we think it is likely to go? And topic three, showdown at the OK Corral. The Republican Party is set to take control of the House in January, but who will be leading it remains up in the air as Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy is still struggling to secure enough support from the far right wing of his party. His supporters are circling the wagon most recently by publicly wearing OK pins, signaling their support for only Kevin. But can he get across the threshold? I had to fight to not laugh at this one, Alan. You could do me the same, the same dignity. It's so lame. It's so lame. It is not great. It's not a cool, super cool move, guys. Sorry, House Republicans, but that's okay. But can Kevin get across the threshold? And at what cost? I will admit my alternate title for this topic was just Kevin, like Home Alone, but I decided that was too much. I'm not sure people would get it. The title should have been, we have to talk about Kevin. Yes, Quentin and I, I have been making this joke for the better part of a week. I thought we had already used, I was pretty sure we already used that one, I thought. Have we? I mean, maybe not. I thought we had. It occurred to me. Um, well, regardless, Alan, you are up for our first topics. So why don't you get us started? You can you can call it whatever you would like. <laughs> so so and I have the cowbell ready anytime. <laughs> Just the, the delight on your face when you when you made that cowbell bell. Um, okay, so let's talk about the January sixth committee. So we are recording this on Tuesday afternoon. So yesterday, Monday, the January 6th committee met for the last time. It turns, you know, it dissolves, it turns into a pumpkin at the end of this Congress. 
And so uh, it has, you know, some some work to, to finish up. Yesterday, or Monday rather, the the committee released the 160, 70 page introduction to what is expected to be a kind of an 800 page report. We think that's going to be released on Wednesday when you're all listening to this, um, along with the transcripts and, and other evidence, uh, though that may be delayed a few days. Um, they're clearly kind of working to the to the wire on this one. In addition to the report, the committee held a, a business meeting, uh, not a hearing. Molly, I would like uh, Gold Star for getting that distinction right. This is like my greatest life achievement, is teaching all of you <laughs> the correct terminology for when members of a congressional committee gather for different purposes. Do they ever have a non-business meeting? Do they ever have a, like a just for kicks meeting that they need the business descriptor? Not really, right? It's just one type of meeting. Um, I mean, I suppose that you would call a gathering of members of the committee that is non-public a meeting, but in terms of things that have like formal titles, you have hearing and you have business meetings. I think the actually generic measure word for a gathering of Congress people is an ego trip. But yes, and hearings and that are, are all sub. That, now sub that's examples. a bad joke. Well Thank played. You. Thank you. Thank you. The real question is, when do they wear frackets? Um, so, <laughs> so at this business meeting, they kind of gave a greatest hits overview of what they've been investigating for the last year and a half. Nothing too new. And then they ended with uh, criminal referrals with uh, Trump uh, and some of his associates uh, for Trump in particular on four charges. Uh, fraud, obstruction of Congress, conspiracy to make a false statement, and most notably, insurrection. Uh, and they did some other things as well. So Quinta, let me start with you. So did we learn anything new on Monday, either with respect to what the committee said or what the committee put in the document it released or what we think the full document may reveal when it comes out? Not really. It seems like much more of a kind of capstone of what the committee has already done um, than providing actual new information. Um, I think the sort of one little nugget uh, was that they appear to have successfully interviewed Trump's aide, Hope Hicks. There was video of her at the, the business meeting. There are quotes from her included in the executive summary. And I should say we, we talked about this in a, a lawfare event that your listener will be available to you as a podcast um, on Wednesday, the day that you're listening to this. Um, but but overall, it's kind of a you know rehash greatest hits. There's some interesting stuff in there, um, as Ben Wittes has noted in a lawfare piece in the the end notes that suggests that there may be sort of some interesting details to mine when the full report comes out. But overall, I don't think this is much of a surprise for anyone who's been paying attention to what the committee has been doing so far. Yeah, I mean, I think so. Quinta mentioned that we saw a video of an interview the committee did with Hope Hicks that we had not previously seen. That interview came, I believe, after the last business meeting that the committee had in October. We know from the endnotes that there are some other interviews and from some public reporting that there are some other interviews they did after um, their last uh, business meeting, including another interview with um, Tony Ornato, who worked at the White House um, on January 6th, who is um, someone who they actually call out in this introductory material as the committee has some questions about the veracity of his statements to them. But in that, I, I think beyond that, most of what we learned yesterday that was new was just 
about like, well, what is the approach that the committee has chosen to take to releasing to the public the product of its work? And so that began yesterday with this this document um, labeled Introductory Material to the Final Report. Um, we can talk about sort of the substance of that in, um, in a minute. Quinta has some um, some thoughts. I know um, I we did not in the, um, the podcast, the Lawfare podcast that we did on this topic, one thing we didn't get to involves referrals of four sitting members of Congress to the House Ethics Committee. We can talk about that. But I think just as Alan said, as we sort of look ahead towards what else we're expecting, it is a more voluminous report itself and then some amount of additional material. There are in this document that was released um, on Monday, there are 70 named individuals who are interviewed. So there are uh, in the they're cited in the footnotes. They're um, cited to 35 separate document productions. Um, so that that's a subset of what we know they did. We don't know whether for sure every one of the cited uh, interviews will be released. We don't know how many more will be released. There's a lot of uncertainty um, as we're recording this, but that's basically, I think, where we left things with the business meeting yesterday. You know, I'll say, you all did a really excellent episode that Molly's already looked to the Lawfare podcast this morning. I think we'll be in the Lawfare pod, the feed, the same day that uh, this episode of Rational Security drops. So folks should definitely check that out. Um, but I did not participate. So I'm going to share my random thoughts on a few things uh, that I did not get to throw in there. But I'll, I'll throw it out for your reaction because I think it's a little different than some folks. And for for my sins, I think I am in the Ben Wittes camp in many regards uh, in terms of my reaction to what happened yesterday in that I, I'm not. It's not clear to me that this is going to be the thing that is kind of like the capstone of their work. Like it is because it's the written product, right? But I think a lot of the impact of the committee's work has kind of already been felt through the hearings that have already really begun this long conversation about, you know, what Donald Trump has done, what he would mean for the future of the Republican Party that, as we talked about in this podcast, other places, at least I personally think you're already seeing ramifications of in various regards in the midterm elections uh, and in kind of the actions around the Republican Party as people are beginning to reframe it and kind of look past Trump uh, as a potential leadership figure, although, you know, still very uncertain exactly where that's going to lead. The more significant parts of this, I guess, in my mind are actually for some of the peripheral figures, which is funny because we've read so much about this sort of drive that the committee had to make this a Donald Trump document that proved somewhat controversial. But coming out of at least the summary in the criminal referrals, like the thing that this seems really consequential for is like Kenneth Cheesebro, right? This is a guy who folks were like really kind of in the weeds, had heard of, knew about, but I don't think most people thought of as like, oh, this is a central guy on this level of John Eastman. But he's one of the six people who got a referral alongside former President Trump, John Eastman, uh, Jeff Clark, Rudy Giuliani. I mean, that makes him really at the center of a lot of these efforts, at least in the committee's views, and is going to bring him to a lot more scrutiny. And I kind of suspect, I'm heavily dubious that, very dubious that a lot of these sorts of referrals regarding former President Trump are going to make big a difference for a variety of reasons we can get into, at least in part because DOJ is already looking at this stuff and and really, uh, you know, a lot of Trump's involvement has already been documented by the committee so centrally. But a lot of these other figures, like it might, DOJ may weigh a little more heavily, maybe a little easier to, to bring them in investigation or at least harder for DOJ to not begin to 
consider them for bringing charges now that they've been elevated and put in this kind of elite circle along with figures like Giuliani. So that's influential. Also, the referrals for for ethics for members of Congress probably not going to go anywhere, but it is kind of a unique singling out of certain people. Some expected Jim Jordan, Kim McCarthy, others maybe a little less expected. And then, of course, attorneys ethics referrals like that also seems fairly threatening along with the obstruction charge. So so it's kind of interesting because I kind of suspect it's most practical marginal impact on top of the hearings will actually be for those less central figures, even though the narrative of the report certainly seemed to be, and certainly the presentation we saw yesterday, so Trump-focused in a way that we know has proven a little bit controversial for folks recently. Does that seem right to you, or or am I missing something in all this? I think one thing to remember um, as we think about like the role of the report versus other, the like hearings as a body of work, is that the hearings that we saw this committee do were kind of exceptionally produced by the standards of congressional hearings. So I think we have this sense, because we all watched them, that like what people will take away from this investigation was what they saw, or what they heard in watching those hearings. I think certainly for like people who watch them, that may well be true. But if we think about, you know, a year from now, five years from now, to the extent that like the work of the committee is considered as part of the historical record, like I still think that what the written product says and what it sort of the the information that's contained in it is going to be really important going forward. Like I don't necessarily think that someone who wants to have a sense of what the committee found and what the committee argued two years from now is going to uh, like sit down and watch hours and hours of video, which is interesting because like that is where so much of the committee's energy went um, in doing the investigation. But I think, I do think that like the written product certainly for posterity is, um, is quite important. Yeah, I, just to be clear, I 100% agree for posterity and for, kind of for historians' sake. And as somebody who actually spends time with long reports, like I appreciate seeing the work. But I'm thinking more in terms of political or policy relevance. It's harder for me to see what the marginal impact is, at least for the main narrative of this, at least in part because even those people who didn't couldn't be bothered to watch parts of the hearing seem much less likely to watch a read a what is going to look like it's going to be a thousand page report in the end, or even a hundred and fifty page uh, executive summary. So I want to use this back and forth that you and Molly and Scott are having about sort of the things that are not just about Trump, which I think is actually really important. And I agree is is in some sense the more important parts of this report, given everything we've already seen in the last year and a half. And another example of this is how the report treats the intelligence failures that led up to the January 6th attack. Uh, And in fact, um, doesn't really call them intelligence failures. You know, Quinta, you, I know, had some very strong feelings. Uh, I think you turned into a uh, rage machine, is I think how you described it on Slack while you were reading that part of the report. And there's a great, great uh, uh, fruit of your rage article on, on Lawfare uh, about that. But, you know, say, say more. How, how did the report, in your view, could have downplayed the intelligence failures? And, and can you connect that also to some interesting kind of process reporting we've had uh, about some real disagreements uh, within the committee about whether just to highlight Trump, which has been uh, Liz Cheney's goal versus a more general accounting for all the errors and mistakes that went into January 6th. Yeah, why, why talk about intelligence failures when you could talk about intelligence successes, Alan? Uh, so to, to put this in a little bit of context, um, I think it has been pretty clear since I would say 
the evening of January 6th, the morning of January 7th, 2021, that various law enforcement and intelligence agencies, uh, largely the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI, but not exclusively, I'll also point the finger at Capitol Police here, um, fell down on the job in an astonishing and catastrophic way in failing to anticipate, prepare for, warn people about what was going to happen on January 6th. The FBI released one intelligence report in advance of the 6th about potential violence. It didn't come from you know the desk of the FBI director or anything like that. It came from the Norfolk, Virginia field office. DHS did not release any formal documents about the potential for violence. And this, I think, is, is you know, a really catastrophic failure that I, multiple former intelligence officials have described as on par with, if not greater than, the level of the intelligence failures in the lead up to 9-11. So this is serious, serious stuff. There has been, uh, as you said, a lot of reporting about the extent to which staffers, uh, members of the committee were sparring over how much they should focus the report on Trump specifically and to what extent that would require leaving out these questions about intelligence and law enforcement failures. And uh, Representative Liz Cheney, who is uh, the Republican vice chair of the committee, had been reported to be sort of at the, the front of the charge in really focusing on Trump personally, which is kind of what the committee did over the summer. Um, it was very focused on Trump as kind of the main villain. And with with good reason. So I was prepared to read a summary that was sort of mostly focused on Trump, less focused on uh, FBI, DHS, Capitol Police failures. And, you know, that would be disappointing to me because I care about those things. But I can understand the committee has a really limited time frame. They're working fast. Something, you know, not everything can fit. What I was not expecting was... Uh, framing that at some points is just sort of overly generous. At other points, I, I'm comfortable saying affirmatively sort of contorts and distorts and misleads the reader about the extent to which FBI and DHS anticipated and did anything to stop January 6th. If you came away from this, you would, you know, with, without any background, you might think that these agencies knew what was going to happen um, and that the report says at one point that, you know, the only thing that they couldn't anticipate, this is a paraphrase, um, is essentially that, you know, that Trump would get up there and encourage people to march to the Capitol. And that's just not true. Uh, so I, I came away, I mean, reading this with and you, you all saw my, my Slack messages of increasing rage and disbelief as I was reading through this. And, you know, I, I won't say it's more in sorrow than in anger because it's definitely in anger. But there, I, there's a more than a little bit of disappointment because I've really been impressed by what the committee has done. I think they've done put together an incredible body of work. And it's disappointing, frankly, to see them choose to kind of go out in this way with a document that is extremely misleading about intelligence and law enforcement failures. Maybe the full report will somehow redeem it. I, I don't really understand how it could, but, you know, just acknowledging that we haven't seen the full document. Um, but I'm pretty stunned, honestly. Just sort of build on what Quinta is saying, um, it struck me as like an unforced error. So um, I was, I think, as Quinta was based on public reporting and what we have sort of watched over the scope of the investigation, I was prepared for this 
this topic of um, the failures of certainly intelligence sharing and action on that intelligence, if not also intelligence gathering, I was prepared for that to just be largely left out of the report. I was not prepared for it the situation to be mischaracterized. Um, there is a, a footnote in the spirit of um, reading the footnotes. Um, there's a footnote in the document that says, I'm just going to read it because it is maybe the like the most shocking uh, piece of writing from this perspective in the document. It says, quote, given the timing of receipt of much of this intelligence immediately in advance of January 6th, it is unclear that any comprehensive intelligence community analytical product could have been reasonably expected. But it is clear that the information itself was communicated. And I think that like that that's just it's just shocking to read. Communicated to who? To whom? Exactly. And I think one of the things that kind of troubles me about the way that this information um, is described um, in at least the introductory material document that we have is that it feeds into this narrative that we have seen over the past um, 18 months from congressional Republicans, particularly in the House, that has really um, sought to highlight the ways in which the select committee has not investigated the security failures at the Capitol on um, January 6th. And that as a result, it will be the new House Republican majority's job to do this when they come into office um, and have the majority starting in January in the 118th Congress. And I am not optimistic that an inquiry um, led by the House Republicans um, on this topic will be in particularly good faith. Like we've seen lots of instances where folks have tried to argue that this was all Nancy Pelosi's fault. We know that, you know, Kevin McCarthy, we're going to talk about him more later, has already been signaling that like this is something that the new majority is going to do. Um, and so I think that the committee, the select committee did not need to give House Republicans more ammunition to fuel their inquiry into what again was a serious failure of preparation of all kinds by the Capitol Police. And that we need a lot of, um, there's a lot of work to be done to make sure they are better prepared for threats in the future. But it just didn't, like, they didn't need to do that. I agree with all, all these sentiments. And it's particularly strange and, or not strange, but unfortunate in my mind, because this is a sort of endemic problem that's not unfamiliar, I think we've seen from what other national security agencies, which is that executive branch agencies, particularly national security agencies, I think they were just afraid of doing things that were viewed negatively by the president, right? And that's actually a much more systemic problem kind of with our whole executive branch and the way we structure authority, particularly in the national security and law enforcement spaces, in that we have become so presidentially driven. It's not clear to those agencies how, you know, reinforce what sort of safety nets they have if they were to take action that, you know, the executive were to view negatively. And we saw how the Trump administration treated whistleblowers and the intelligence community in the Ukraine context. Like this was a moment where Congress actually really could have stood up and installed some mechanisms to give people in the federal government safety nets so they could say things like this that the leadership and the executive branch might not want to hear and not worry about career repercussions, um, which frankly is what I think probably was a big dampening factor in why what may have been some raw collection of information at parts of the intelligence community did not turn into warnings, reports, and other things we would expect to happen here. You know, I'm I'm inferring that, but I think it's a pretty solid inference. Congress needs to engage on that sort of stuff. And frankly, to get those agencies to engage in a form of their own, you really need public pressure on them to do so. But, you know, at the same time, we're about to see the House Judiciary Committee 
potentially break and target the FBI for around investigations saying that they are politically motivated in the other direction in favor of Democrats. We've already seen Jim Jordan, other uh, Republicans on the Judiciary Committee signal that's going to be a major line of investigation for them. So it, it, it may be teeing it up was being to be a weird moment it was going to add fuel to that fire. That seems like a bad excuse. This is just a systematic problem that Congress is the only one who can address and instead has kind of has failed to address more or less. Before we leave this topic, I do want to talk about the referrals. And so you know, a question for Scott and a question for Molly. So question for Scott is, you said earlier that you're, you don't really think that these referrals with respect to Trump, at least, are going to have much impact you know, on, on DOJ. And, and so I'm curious if you think that they're just a waste of time or they might have some other, some other role. Um, and the question for you, Molly, is you know, in addition to the criminal referrals, there were a couple of referrals to, to the House Ethics I don't know if it's a committee or a, or a board or a, an ego trip, as we discussed earlier, is the right measure word, generic measure word for Congress. And so I'm sort of curious what that will mean, especially in a Republican-controlled Congress or House, at least in January. So let, let me start with you, Scott. Why are you so skeptical that these Trump referrals matter? Sure. You know, we actually talked about this maybe six months ago or maybe even a little further out, I think before the first January 6th committee hearings, when there was that debate where the committee was deciding to pre-decide whether they were going to do any referrals or not as part of their proceedings. And, you know, at the time, my view was, and I, I think I stand by this, is that maybe there is some logic for committee for doing this if they were worried DOJ wasn't going to act otherwise. And that they might be doing so might provide some political cover or some political pressure to say, look, at least, you know, Congress, a substantial portion of it, and bipartisan, although, you know, by slim margins, thinks there's something here to look at. That's not the state of play now. Um, we know DOJ is pursuing very substantive investigation to this. And on top of that, we know there is a very, very far along investigation in Georgia regarding a slice of the affairs that's happening here, meaning Georgia election interference. And we have the Mar-a-Lago investigation. And frankly, you know, Alan, you correct me if I'm wrong, because you're the former DOJ guy, but all my interactions with DOJ over the course of my career and, and watching them has has always suggested that when they have a set of charges they can bring out of a universe of charges, they go for us, particularly for sensitive targets, the lowest hanging fruit. And that doesn't mean they go after every charges they could possibly allocate. And in this case, I think it's a lot more likely DOJ is going to get to a place where they can bring charges they think will stick out of the Mar-a-Lago investigation uh, and potentially out of, and, and we'll see it come out of Fulton County. And that's setting aside the New York investigation regarding Trump organization, which is a little different, but kind of enters in here. The stuff we've seen about Trump coming out of the hearing, a lot of it I don't think is stuff you could prove in a court of law. A lot of the evidence is pure hearsay. You would have to get some people pretty close to Trump to flip and testify. And even then, it's a little bit of he said, she said. We haven't seen a lot of documentary evidence directly implicating Donald Trump in some of this, the exception being kind of the Georgia call. Um, but that seems to be channeling into the Fulton County investigation. And so because of that, you know, I think I – I don't really see this really changing the calculus for DOJ very much. Um, they clearly have gotten over whatever political barriers or disincentives they may have had for exploring these seriously because they very clearly are investigating former President Trump now. And other than that, I'm just not sure these referrals do much. They also just don't seem to track very closely how DOJ has been pursuing this. Like they they pursued this very interesting kind of alternative theory about charging for the false elector documentation under a conspiracy to make a false statement charge, but they didn't pursue in a meaningful way, Team USC 372, which DOJ has actually used to charge January 6th participants in, which I thought was an odd choice. And I'm not 100% sure why. I'm guessing it's because I think conspiracy can carry a larger penalty. Um, I'm not 100% sure about that. But, you know, it, it, I just don't think otherwise the persuasive power there really makes a big difference for Trump. The other people maybe, because again, it elevates people who are kind of below the radar for a lot of people before, but not for Trump. 
Well, speaking of other people, let's talk about the the internal referrals. Molly, what about these these ethics referrals? Sure. Um, I will not take very long on this because there's not much to say beyond the fact that like they're also largely symbolic in nature. So it is it is, I think, notable. There are five members of Congress who were subpoenaed by the committee. None of them complied with the subpoena. Four of them were referred to the House Ethics Committee. The fifth, um, Representative Mo Brooks, is retiring, so will no longer be under the jurisdiction of the House Ethics Committee come um, January 3rd. The sort of idea here is that, you know, not complying with the subpoena uh, would be a violation of the House rule that that requires members to conduct themselves, quote, at all times in a manner that shall reflect, reflect credibly on the House. So like that's that's the logic here. But the th- most important thing to know is that the House Ethics Committee is evenly divided between Democrats and Republicans. Unlike almost all other congressional committees, um, it has that balance. And so as a result, to take any kind of action, whether it's to initiate um, an investigative subcommittee, which would look into the uh, allegations that have been transmitted to the House Ethics Committee, whether it is to take any steps beyond that, that requires the vote of at least one Republican. And again, we're going to talk about the nature of the House Republican Conference when we talk about Kevin McCarthy shortly. But I just don't imagine that the that there's going to be a lot of appetite um, among sitting members of the House Republican Conference um, come January to take up any of this material um, in the Ethics Committee. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Well, before we go to the Republican conference, let us take a, a quick jaunt overseas um, so given given that it is the end of the year, uh, we thought that we would look back on the Russian invasion of Ukraine and sort of take stock of uh, where we were and where we're headed. So, of course, Russia invaded Ukraine on February 24th, uh, 2022. So it's been almost not quite a year of war. Uh, Ukraine obviously is doing, I think, far better than anyone expected. It's pretty striking to look back on reporting from those first few weeks where I think a, a lot of uh, papers in, in the West and Western officials were really expecting that Ukraine would collapse any day now. I, I think we did too, for what oh, it's yeah, worth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, just, I was just looking at old New York Times reporting. But yes, I will also take the blame for this. I too was wrong. Um, and and also, you know, Russia is doing worse, not in the sense that, you know, a, a war is necessarily a zero-sum game, but that 
the Russian military has turned out to be kind of a shambles. Um, and the the New York Times had a really stunning long article about this that I'd highly recommend folks take a look at if they have the time that's called Putin's War that goes in depth into just how much of a failure the Russian invasion ha- has been and kind of how we got there. So Scott, let me turn to you first. I'm curious for your thoughts on the article or just sort of overall about the the last however many months it's been. The article is an absolutely phenomenal read with lots of really phenomenal anecdotes and stories, some really, really brutal taken from different aspects of the Russian experience during this war. I actually think the last of the six kind of sec- subsections of the article is the one really worth reading because it frames where I think we are in the conflict now in the Russian perspective, which is that you know, Vladimir Putin has essentially settled in for the long haul. There's no clear signs that the conflict, as cost as it's been, is going to trigger a sudden drop in his control of the country. Um, he appears to weather the issue so far. Now, we don't know whether that will stay true or not. I mean, Russia is a bit of a black box. Russia, uh, Russian politics, particularly when you're talking about among Russian elites that are closest to Putin and are in the best position to oust him if they really wanted to and could get it, feel like they could get enough support to do so are not people we have good insight into their motives and their relationships and their behavior, right? But until that happens, and we don't really know what point that will happen, it looks like Putin is still in control of the country and still in a position to continue pursuing this pretty brutal path of war. And then the question becomes, well, can he outlast the West and outlast Ukraine? This becomes a genuine war of attrition in kind of the you know classic logical paradigm, right? Which is just saying two parties are waiting out. Neither one knows exactly where their breaking point is. And they're both in a painful situation until one finally caves. And that's kind of where we're at right now on the Putin side. On the U.S. side, we've seen some pretty notable developments, specifically in the omnibus uh, appropriations legislation that Congress seems poised to uh, move forward with uh, this week before they leave. Um, and that's that we've seen actually Congress really lock itself into a position to provide substantial support to Ukraine at levels above what the Biden administration originally asked. And it's actually positioned itself to do so in a kind of an innovative way passed through a longer window than I thought was on the table, although I may have missed some details on this. What essentially they've done, I think the biggest parts of this that I understand is that they've essentially put in place first an $11 billion kind of replenishment supply fund, uh, which I believe is a few billion higher than what the Biden administration originally asked for. That basically matches the presidential drawdown authority. That means that the president, as of, I think, May's last Ukraine assistance bill, the president can give up to $11 billion of U.S. military equipment and supplies services to Ukraine as foreign assistance. This allows them to replenish that. So it basically guarantees over the next year or so the president can fully use that existing authority without significantly undermining, at least permanently, American supplies of the equipment. And then it puts in place both a kind of $9 billion, slightly higher than the Biden administration, which I think it asked for around $7 billion, Ukraine Security Assistance Fund in place, and then actually extend this timeline not just to 2023, like a lot of the funds in the bill, but all the way to September 30th, 2024. Um, and then also installs an authority in relation to that fund, which allows the Biden administration to accept contributions from foreign partner nations and essentially recharge into that fund and use it in the same way through 2024. And that basically gives the Biden administration a tool by which it can continue to provide significant financial support to the Ukrainians through almost the next presidential election. That's significant. I suspect it's something that Democrats in the House uh, and Congress got in place because they're worried about pressure from a Republican House. 
I suspect Republicans in the House and the Senate may have been on board with it as well because Ukraine's politically sensitive for them and it's easier for them to be able to complain and rail and say they would do something to stop the Biden administration without actually doing it. And this kind of frees them up to do that. It's worth noting this is just part of the assistance packages, other things that will need to have appropriated funds for it. But a lot of those are about U.S. activities. This is one of the main channels of, of foreign assistance. So it's setting the United States up in a better position than I fully expected it to be, although this isn't a huge departure, to actually really provide Ukraine with ongoing assistance, at least for the next you know two years or so, a little less than two years. And that that's pretty notable. But again, it's not clear that that's going to be the whole duration of this conflict. We don't know how long it's going to last. And so that war of attrition question is still hanging out there. When do we and when do Russia reach our respective breaking points? So obviously, it's really hard to, to predict anything in a war. But I, I do think, Scott, I think you might be being a bit too cautious. Um, I mean, I'll go on a limb and make a prediction that I don't think this is a war of attrition in which each side is waiting for the other side to break. I think Russia has just lost um, and that we are watching this play out in slow motion uh, and maybe not so slow motion. And it may take three months, six months, it may take a year. But it seems that at this point, honestly, even if Russia does use nuclear weapons, in which case maybe everyone loses, but that there, at this point we can just say Russia has lost and nothing will change that. The Ukrainians will not give up. The United States can supply Ukraine sufficiently for the next two years which is probably much longer than this creaking Russian paper behemoth can last. The Europeans are surprisingly on board. The Chinese, um, who are spinning into their own zero COVID, actually lots of COVID mess, are probably have no interest in, in supporting this. And I think it is just a matter of time. Now, you know, how exactly the lines get redrawn, these are all interesting questions, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I think at this point, it, you know, I think it's like it's sort of it's a, it's a little like Germany 1942. Like they lost the war by that point, and it was just a playing out of the rest of it, right? And that doesn't mean that that's not a you know that's some sort of trivial exercise. Lots of more people will die on the Russian side, on the Ukrainian side as well. But the, in in some deep sense, this war does seem over. And and I think even more broadly, and maybe this is because I finally decided to read Francis Fukuyama's The End of History and the Last Man the kind of maybe most misunderstood book uh, of, of political science and political theory of the last 30 years, um, and which everyone should read because it's really superb. You know, I, I think that for understandable reasons over the last you know, 15 years, ever since the, fi the financial crisis and then Brexit and Trump and you know, all of these crises in liberal democracies, there's been a real question about whether or not these systems can survive relative to you know, what were thought of as well-functioning authoritarian regimes like China, or at least okay functioning authoritarian regimes like Russia. But I think what you're seeing, and Russia is a prime example of this, but I think you're seeing this also in China, which is why I think these are two actually somewhat related issues, is, is that closed extractive authoritarian regimes just start making huge mistakes. And the mistakes they make are just tend to be bigger and harder to correct from than the mistakes made by liberal democracies. And I think the Russian example, both in terms of the just unbelievable levels of corruption, mismanagement, and incompetence of the military, which is so vividly illustrated by this article. But then also the more specific, you know, mistake of uh, Putin was in isolation during COVID. And I think, as you said, Quinta, when this all started, seems to have just kind of gotten a bit weird. Um, like everyone, the, everyone got weird. Uh, yeah, we all we all got, yes, we all, we all got weird. Only but, one know. of us invaded a sovereign. Yes, exactly. We all got weird, but only one of us has, you know, 10 divisions to play with. He made a mistake and there was no one to challenge him. And so, so you know, I, I, I think we are seeing one of these kind of historical hinge points that comes about every 25 years and, and, and that that is Russia's defeat in Ukraine.
This is my this is my big this is my big uh, my big historical theory for the for the week. Yeah, we're we're gonna hold you to that when at our, our year end. We totally should. I'll be really. I'll, I would love to revisit this in a year. I'm so curious to see what will happen. I feel like I'm either going to be super right or just unbelievably wrong. Saying I was drawing too strong a conclusion by <laughs> going back and saying Francis Fukuyama was right is a bold play. I he, will say. he was obviously Wait, right. No, I will side with Alan. Was I, right. Fukuyama I, was right. I, I think that totally book is right. misunderstood. I like parts of Justice it too. It's not a thesis. It's not a thesis. You prove <laughs> very easily on a podcast, guys. What I will say here's: I think your parallel to Germany 1942 is key here, uh, and it really emphasizes why this is different and why it will not play out the same way. What did the Allies do after 1942 when Russia was on its back legs, or pardon me, Germany was on its back legs and, and losing? They marched to Berlin. It's the one thing that can't be done against Russia. No one can go and dislodge Russia. If they could, if Russia's core, right, could be threatened in that way, it would be much more vulnerable. I think Putin would be much more scared, but they have that nuclear umbrella. Um, that's why it's protective. There's also Part of the reason, frankly, I think it's unlikely they will deploy it externally because it's still there. That's a much more effective deterrent for their internal stability as long as it's still there, right? Uh, Once they deploy it and they break the seal, who knows how things are going to escalate? So it really comes down to much more of an internal calculus on Russia's part. And that's just we don't know. I I agree with you. I mean, I think Russia's obviously lost this war so far. I think Ukrainians have been incredibly resilient. But a big part of winning this war in the future is going to be making sure we manage it in a way that we maintain support of Ukraine's allies, make us pain, not as painless, you can't make it painless, but make it lower the pain quotient for Ukraine, for Ukraine supporters and others to the extent you can, and just prepare yourself for the long haul. Because I don't think expectations of this conflict is going to be over, despite Russia's numerous setbacks are well-founded. And if nothing else, out of an abundance of caution, I think you should prepare for the worst. I, you know, I, I, I take your point about the disanalogy with, with World War II, and I think it's a fair one. So, so Len, then let me then say maybe the better analogy is Russia's disastrous invasion of Afghanistan in the 1980s, which, again, the United States was never going to march into Moscow to stop, but, you know, destroyed the Russian military, destroyed whatever remaining faith there was in the system, um, and was one of, you know, not the only, but one of the main drivers then of the collapse of the Soviet Union um, in the late 80s and early 90s. And I think we're looking at something that is frankly, orders of magnitude actually more of a defeat than Russia ever, ever dealt with in Afghanistan. I mean, already, it's more of a defeat. So I, I want to make sure that Molly can get a word in edgewise here to to talk about the omnibus bill and the, but, the funding but for Ukraine. we're talking about Congress twice. This is foreign policy. This also, is Scott and I are such military, renowned military experts. You don't exactly. just hear us blather uh-huh. for half an uh-huh. hour? Yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. Also, it's worth noting that one of the four of us has a PhD in political science and has has said nothing about Frank Fukuyama. Um, but um, I will um, just maybe to wrap up this conversation and go back a little bit to what Scott was talking about before with the current kind of posture of the U.S. government, particularly the U.S. Congress, towards continued support for Ukraine. And then um, I think this will tee us up nicely to talk about House Republicans more generally, which is that, um, you know, as Scott said, we did see in this big omnibus spending bill more aid for Ukraine, um, interestingly structured, as Scott has described, than um, the Biden administration asked for. And I think this is a reflection that there is concern among at least some 
folks, probably both in the Biden administration and in Congress um, and in both parties in Congress, about the ability of Congress to keep approving legislation that supports the Ukrainians at the level we have been doing um, since the beginning of the conflict particularly because um, one of the places where kind of the rump faction of the House Republican Conference has been most vocal in their emerging uh, opposition to uh, Kevin McCarthy's bid to become speaker is on this question of like regular order and big spending bills. Um, And this notion that we may well see the biggest governing flashpoints in the next two years be around the ability of Congress to approve spending legislation and aid to Ukraine, as as well as many other things. Um, could get caught in those bigger fights. Um, And what has sustained the consensus um, over uh, funding to Ukraine so far is the fact that, you know, particularly in the Senate, we have seen kind of mostly Republican unity on the idea that this is something the U.S. government should be doing. Uh, Leader McConnell himself has been part of this. And so the question of whether that unity can be sustained in a world where Republicans control one chamber, and this becomes even more of a thing that um, Congress is being asked to do because the Biden administration wants to do it, I think is a real um, is a real challenge. Uh, and so I, I, that is uh, kind of why I see where um, at least the congressional piece of this went recently. I do want to hear Molly's thoughts on Frank Fukuyama, though. I feel like that was teased, and I still don't know. <laughs> I feel like he's out of fashion with the look with the quantitative political scientists. Is that fair? Too much, too much Hegel, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's fair. Um, to also to be fair, um, none of my political science training is in international relations. This is shocking to all of you, I know. Um, but I did have to, I did have to get in, you know, uh, to rep the discipline um, when when I had the when you teed up the opportunity to do so. Well. Molly, you have teed us up very well to transition to our third topic, because we are talking about those very congressional dynamics and where they may lead and what the dynamics may be in the next Congress, particularly in the Republican leadership in the House um, that you just hinted at in regards in the context of Ukraine. You know, instead of me trying to provide an overview of this, I think I'm just going to hand it over to you to give us a little sense about where things are, because that seems quite redundant of me, a (laughs) non-expert, while we have you on the line. Um, But we know control of the House obviously is going to go to the Republicans, or at least they have to have the numbers to make it happen. Um, There's this fight with Kevin McCarthy to get the number of votes he needs to actually become Speaker. There's holdouts on the far right of his party. Tell us a little bit about the math that McCarthy's working with, the timeline he's working with, because he's only got a little over a week, I guess, to really pull all the pieces in place, um, where you think it's headed and what the policy ramifications might be. Right. So the 118th Congress um, will convene on January 3rd with 222 Republicans, 212 Democrats. Um, There'll be one vacancy. There was a death of a Democratic member from Virginia um, after the election. And more or less, uh, the first thing that the new Congress does is to have the election um, of a speaker. Um, And the way that this works is that, so unlike the rest of the party leadership positions um, in the uh, in Congress, the vote for speaker is not simply a vote of of the members of one's own party. So, you know, when Mitch McConnell uh, stands for election as Republican leader in the Senate, that is a vote of the members of the Senate Republican Conference only. The speaker, um, because it's a constitutional office, the speaker's election is a vote of the full house. Um, and so 
working under the, I think, completely fair assumption that no Democrats will vote for uh, Kevin McCarthy. Um, He will have to get enough support to make um, a numerical majority of those present and voting for a candidate by name uh, to win election as speaker. The reason I am attempting to be precise about um, the the nature of the majority is that um, you know, one option for McCarthy is to get um, 218 votes from uh, House Republicans to have all 212 Democrats vote for a different candidate um, and then lose up to four members of the um, of the um, Republican conference. What's also an option is for people to um, either not vote, uh, not show up to the vote or to vote present, uh, which reduces the denominator out of which this numerator, uh, this numerical majority is calculated. It's all very complicated. In this January of 2019, I did this math live on C-SPAN. It's not an experience I ever want to revisit. Um, but I think that's a nightmare I've had. It is. It's I. So there was, uh, I believe, after the 2020 presidential election, the night of Election Day, at le- there was at least one reporter on cable news who was doing like arithmetic on um, one of the the margin in one of the states by hand on air. And I felt deep. I felt deeply sympathetic for this experience. But this is all to say that Kevin McCarthy has uh, very little room to maneuver. Um, and up at, at least till now. December 20th, there continue to be um, a sizable number of House Republicans who are skeptical of voting for him. Um, some of them have said that they will vote for him under no, there are no circumstances in which they would do, they will do anything except vote for someone else. It is also true that when Nancy Pelosi ran for speaker in 2019, she had people who said they would not vote for her under any circumstances. Um, They would absolutely vote for someone else. Some of those people changed their minds, but the clock is ticking. And as we get closer and closer to the third, it becomes um, more challenging to see how Kevin McCarthy would get, would win the speakership um, election on a first ballot. Um, And then that would potentially shift us to the first multi-ballot speaker election that we've seen since I believe the early 20th century it's time for some game theory (laughs) again one of us has ever had to do game theory and i don't need to do it again lawyers talk about game theory we just talk about in two by two grids so 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 what so no so so okay so question so this is good this this section can be just we ask molly questions (laughs) my understanding is that you know one approach that kevin mccarthy i call him okay okay kevin um, I guess uh, we, we should also say that the the little pins that said okay, there were periods after the O and the K, which just really added to the, the air of Kevin mediocrity and just a kind of general lack of enthusiasm about the entire thing. <laughs> so, so one possibility, right, is that is that he's going to pick up his sort of last couple of votes he needs by promising to devolve, which I think is power right to the members which my understanding is sort of what speakers always do when they need to you know get some votes are there any limits on the extent to which he can limit his own power as speaker and and if he does end up limiting his own power as speaker and basically creates the ability to call snap no confidence votes i mean what what does that mean going forward i mean you know is a situation where he could become speaker of the house and then it doesn't actually like the house is still totally paralyzed in chaos. 
Yeah. So I think that um, there's a couple sort of moving parts here. So one is that um, you're absolutely right that one of the things that has happened historically when someone is having trouble getting the support necessary from his or her own party to be elected speaker um, is they make promises sometimes to individuals, sometimes to groups of members within the um, within the party. So in 20 uh, late 2018, when Pelosi was trying to shore up her support to be elected speaker in 2019, one of the things that she did was promise a set of um, folks who didn't want to vote for her that she would step down um, at some point in the future, that she would only serve, I believe it was two more terms um, as, as speaker. And so she is ultimately, you know, fulfilled that promise. Um, she also, you know, promised, um, I believe it was Marsha Fudge, the chair of a new of a like resuscitated subcommittee on one of the house committees so there are just the, there are things that you can do that aren't exclusively devolving power um in terms of like the mechanisms for the devolution of power depend really depends on what you're talking about some of them will require votes just in the house republican conference um because they involve changes under conference rules some of them will require votes uh to change the full rules of the house that's a um usually party line vote that also happens at the beginning of the Congress. So there are a couple different ways that can happen. The thing that you uh, really focus on, Alan, is this question of what's called the motion to vacate the chair, which is the... Um, it should be something more fun. It should be like the mo- motion to like, defenestrate the speaker, like, <laughs> you know, to press the eject, uh, to eject button. So um, the motion to vacate um, is the ability of um, someone to bring a motion, um, a privileged motion on the floor of the House that uh, basically would unseat the speaker. Um, we sort of all learned about this um, most recently in the summer of 2015 when um I believe it was Mark Meadows to return to where we began this conversation um, when he was still a member of the House was leading an effort to um, try and offer a motion to vacate against um, then Speaker John Boehner. This is one of the straws that contributed to uh, breaking the the camel's back on Boehner's speakership. And he, you know, decided after the Pope came to Washington in the fall of 2015, he was done and he didn't want to be speaker anymore. In 2019, when Democrats took the majority, they made a change to the motion to vacate in the House rules that basically it was only, it could only be offered as a privileged motion on the floor if it was done so at the direction of either the entire majority party caucus or the entire minority party caucus. So basically, it would require the support of a majority of either party to offer um, the motion. Um, and so there's been this question of whether uh, McCarthy would allow that would sort of endorse a change to go back to the, the previous like anyone can do it model. That I think is like his le- is like very the very last arrow in his quiver. I think it is the last thing that he wants to do. Um, it's, you know, it's we, we keep talking about it, but he is yet to come out and say that he'd be willing um, to make that change. And so in part for the reason that you just described is that like that would really um, encourage kind of abject chaos in, in the, um, on the house floor if um, folks were feeling like McCarthy wasn't doing what he wanted them to, what they wanted him to do. Well, I want to, talk to you about the other kind of like red line that doesn't seem to realistically be on the table here and, and talk about why, which is cross-party support, right? Like it, it strikes me that in a strictly like institutional model, McCarthy would have an incentive to go after some of the more conservative Democrats in the House and try and get them to back him, especially when he needs three or four people. And then he doesn't have to cater to the extreme right wing. And inherently, it would seem that he may want to at least flirt with that possibility so that 
he has some credible alternative to the most far right wing members of his party who are the holdouts here, because so long as it seems clear that he can't even get those Democratic votes, they've really got the edge of leverage if he wants to be speaker, right? Because there's just nowhere else for him to go to get those votes. But McCarthy really doesn't seem to be doing this, going this direction at all. Um, instead, he's really doubling down. You know, we saw this commentary on the omnibus bill, which is ready to pass it. You know, the Senate Republicans are 100% on board with. And he said, not only would I do I 100% support this little group of right wing House members who say they're going to block the legislative agendas of every Senate Republican that voted for this, that votes for this bill, which appears to be most of them probably would seem a little unrealistic. But he says, I would never bring this bill if I were speaker. Nothing like this will ever get to the floor in the House in the first place. Um, so he's obviously playing to the right. Is there a point at which that even enters into the equation here? Are we just too far gone politically? And what does that do with, to Mark Carthy's leverage? Because it, it just seems like without that alternative, he doesn't really have a choice but to cave to the far right. And if they don't see it as a realistic threat that he ever will go across the aisle or could go across the aisle, then I don't see why they really have much incentive to capitulate until it really looks like, I guess, leadership could completely fall apart on the Republican side. Um, but even then, it seems like they maybe they, they find somebody else. I, I, I just don't know what the what the calculus is when you don't have that that option that doesn't seem to be on the table. Yeah. So I think that um, number one, um, the question is like, who would be those Democrats? So we know that, um, I mean, in we can sort of bracket for the moment the existence of Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin in the Senate. But beyond the two of them, we really don't have sizable centrist Democratic blocks in either chamber. So it's just not clear who would be the handful of um, the most moderate Democratic House members who would be sort of willing to go along with Kevin McCarthy as speaker, in large part, one, because the parties are as polarized as they are, and two, because, you know, the way that McCarthy has played the game so far, as you just described, is to sort of just keep tacking right and making more and more concessions to the right. Also, you know, he himself has like, the, the way that he has sort of built his career as the minority leader is by tacking like closer and closer to Trump, becoming sort of like very open embrace of um, of Trump. And so it's just it's not plausible to me that you would get that number of, of Democrats. The thing that you have seen that sort of a couple times in, in fleeting um, uh, mentions and like I think the like only Kevin movement is meant to be um, part of this is this idea that like the more um, I don't want to call them moderate because they're not moderate. I don't want to call them centrist, um, but sort of the core of the House Republican Conference, the ones who are not the most kind of radical, um, those folks have not um, exercised as much of their own leverage um, as you might you might expect. Um, they have not, for instance, said, like, we're not going to vote for Kevin McCarthy unless he makes us promises. But I think fundamentally, it is just this question of, like, no Democrats are interested in doing that. They're not interested in saving McCarthy. So yeah, I mean, we we have seen the dynamic that you are describing in some state legislatures. Um, I believe not long ago, something very similar to what you described, like a coalition of some Democrats and some Republicans um, is governing in the Alaska state legislature. And so it's not impossible. It's just not something we should expect in the U.S. House of Representatives. Well, folks, we will have to leave the conversation there for now because we are running rapidly out of time. But this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to think over in the week to come 
before you hear our voices once again in your podcatcher. Alan, what do you have for us for an object lesson this week? So I have a excellent, uh, excellent movie recommendation. Uh, it's The Courier. It's a 2022 movie. Uh, it's a good old classic spy thriller starring Benedict Cumberbatch as uh, Greville Wynn, a kind of very boring, a normal British salesman in the 1960s who was recruited by British intelligence to go and help a, a high-level Russian defector provide the West with uh, secrets about Amer- uh, Soviet nuclear technology um, all up in the lead-up to the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. It's actually based on a, on a true story. There really was a, a Greville Wynn um, who uh, was the courier uh, with uh, uh, Colonel Oleg Penkovsky, um, who is still considered sort of the highest placed Soviet uh, intelligence source and um, is generally regarded as playing a key role in giving the West kind of ammunition in the Cuban uh, Missile Crisis. Uh, it's a great movie, um, really good acting from both Cumberbatch and uh, the Georgian actor Merab Ninidja, who plays Penkovsky. Um, and uh, yeah, just highly, highly recommended. I feel I feel like it, it kind of flew in under the radar in 2020. It was sort of well reviewed, but I think got a lot of buzz. And so now now it's on Amazon Prime. So now we can all watch it. Well, excellent. We'll have to check that out. Quinto, what do you have for object lesson today? I'm going to recommend my favorite cookie recipe because it is the time of the year when people bake a lot of uh, sugary treats. And so I would like to recommend a recipe from Cooks Illustrated that is for brown sugar cookies with browned butter. It is not entirely foolproof. I have screwed it up. I will say even when I screwed it up, it was still pretty delicious. Also, when you brown still the butter. Still a bunch of sugar and butter. Exactly. That's fine. The, the browning butter smells really good. It makes your kitchen smell, you know, nice and homey. Uh, so I, I recommend these cookies if you are looking for something new to try your hand at. Well, that's excellent. Although I will warn you, there's a certain point where if you brown butter too far, it begins to smell horrible, and it really well. Yes, that, that, that's what's called burning. <laughs> yeah, it is a really yeah. when you get that smell in your kitchen, it does not go away for when a while. the fire alarm goes the off. Way. That's a bad sign. <laughs> well, for my object lesson, I'm also sharing a recipe. But first, I'm going to read this review of this recipe that we received from a listener. Scott, I don't use Twitter, but last year I braved its depths to find your apparently criminally underappreciated cocktail eggnog recipe tweet, and I have made it multiple times since to rave reviews each time. The orange zest nutmeg finish is indeed clutch, so if no one else has thanked you for it lately, thank you for putting a good recipe out into the universe. It lives on farther than you know. Thank you, Mike, because that is just the reminder I needed to re-up my eggnog recipe This is actually last a year. burner account by Scott. <laughs> My middle name is Mike. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Also, did did Mike shake your eggnog to space? Like, I don't understand. I don't know if I get that, but that's okay. <laughs> he said it went farther than we know uh, in the oh, universe. Yeah, I mean, all out there. Yeah, exactly. I get it. I will say, I made my first batch. I have, I have, I have been on a bit of a healthy eating kick, so I have not been eating eggnog nearly as so, much as so, I did last. So you've, you've only, you're only down to so you're only doing two eggnogs a, a day. For I'm only doing two eggnogs a night. Yeah, one, one, one midday, one at dinner. Um, but so I made it made some uh, this past weekend for the first time this holiday season. It is really good. So I will re up that. But I don't want to deprive people of another holiday themed object lesson. So I will make another cocktail recommendation. And that is the lion's tail. If you believe it or not, it is basically a tiki cocktail that has kind of autumn wintertime flavors with allspice, graham, bourbon, lime juice, 
uh, Angostura bitters and Demerara syrup. It's pretty excellent. If you throw an egg white in there, it makes a really nice flip. So I'll put that in the show notes as well. I'm going to make that tonight, Scott. It's really, really that good. It's an so excellent good. cocktail. I like it better without the egg whites because I drink so much eggnog. I kind of blow my egg white quotient on that. But uh, it's really, really excellent. So I, worth, I recommend checking it out. It's like one of my favorite autumn cocktails. I love it. I love an easy tiki. That's what I'm here for. But before I get too easy tiki uh, this evening, Molly, <laughs> you need to bring you need to bring us home with your object lesson. What do you have to share with us? So if you are unlike Alan and you don't hate sports and you are feeling like don't hate sports, I just <laughs> just just leave them. Just and you feel <laughs> like you are missing the World Cup now that it is over. The podcast recommendation that I have for all of you um, is a podcast that um, was done by uh, NPR and um, Forturo Studios. Um, it's called The Last Cup or La Ultima Copa. And it's by an Argentine journalist named Jasmine Gard. And it is about sort of principally about um, Lionel Messi's quest, successful, we now know, to lead the Argentinian um, team to uh, a World Cup victory, but also more generally about sort of the host's experience emigrating from Argentina to the United States, Messi's experience um, emigrating from Argentina to Europe to play professional soccer. Um, it is about um, sort of the, the way that soccer and identity and migration and economics all interact um, in our contemporary world. And I can't recommend it highly enough it's just really um it's a really compelling story and it's really well done so uh, particularly if you are um, looking for something to fill the world cup hole in your life i recommend it to you and worth noting american football is still going on for a couple more months so hop on the bandwagon guys just kind of squeeze that soccer ball down make a little oval it's basically the same game it's great well, folks, with that, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security 2.0 is like its forebear, a production of Lawfare. Follow us on Twitter at RTL Security and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. While you're at it, visit lawfareblog.com for our show page with links to past episodes, for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors, and for information on Lawfare's other phenomenal podcast series. And be sure to sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo, and her music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. And we are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Patcha Howell. On behalf of my co-host, Quentin Allen, and our special guest, Molly Reynolds, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.